welcome to episode 113 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. As some of you will have noticed with the PDF files that I published recently courtesy of Landon Michelson, I've changed this podcast feed so that I can now publish PDF files and have you grab them and view them uh, from iTunes. The reason that I originally made these changes was so that I could publish a PDF file that I put together myself a few weeks ago and the document is entitled Martin Bailey on Photography which is basically just a play on the site name. I really have just sort of put down a number of random thoughts on photography based on a few headers that I spat out while thinking of the project. The main point of today's podcast is to go through the document for the sake of uh, those of you that would prefer to listen rather than read. I do urge you to take a look at the document as well though as I've placed sort of example images appropriately throughout the document. I'm not going to go and call out the numbers of the images today as I normally do because it would make it extra long. It's going to be pretty long anyway. Um, but you know what basically all of the images are included in the PDF so if you sort of flick through that you'll get a, an idea. And there's also a link to all of the images at the end of the PDF as well. There are uh, just a couple though that I do need to shout out the number four in the middle. Just they're ones that I referenced directly in the in the document, and the rest are just sort of placed throughout to kind of back up what I'm talking about. So that's that's it though. I'll pretty much um, read out the most of it and skip over some of the the areas that we don't really need to go into. Um, but I hope you enjoy it and uh, let me know uh, if this is a, a format that you do enjoy and I'll probably uh, do some more in the future if, if it is. So first off, and like I said, I'm going to skip over some of the areas, uh, but uh, there's a little bit of a biography in which I just explained that I was born in Nottingham in 1967, which makes me 40 this year. I talk a little bit about when I got my first camera and uh, what I shoot with now, etc. And I also mention what type of subjects I shoot, but I won't go into details on it right now. I then start the, the main part of the document with a section on what attracted me to photography or what attracts me to photography. Basically, since I was small, I love making things. I spent hours drawing, painting, sculpting with plasticine. Um, I, I can probably hear a few of you smiling now. If you have kids yourself, you probably will have it around the house. And if you were small in, in, in England, at least, I'm not sure about other countries, You'll probably know exactly what it is but it's basically a kind of modeling clay that kids love to play with and um, I'm you know like I said, I'm not sure if this is available in the rest of the world it doesn't really matter but if, if it's available let me know and I can sort of reminisce on that a little bit more and during my school days though I hated maths I don't like anything where the teacher can only say it doesn't matter why you multiply the two numbers in this situation you just do so remember the formula you know, sure, if I'd had a better teacher with um, you know, the patience to explain how the formula came about or why we use it, then it might have been fun, but I wasn't that lucky. 
I did enjoy, though, um, art, metalwork, woodwork, physics, and even uh, English language and literature, which were more academic than my other favourites. And I, I did pay more attention to, you know, to all of these subjects when I wasn't trying to be the centre of attention and messing around in the class. These subjects were either creative or had formula that, and rules that I, uh, I could either understand uh, or I could guess the reasons why um, it was how it was. To me, photography is like an amalgamation of art and science with the film uh, age and now digital. It's always been about both the physics of the light, the me uh, mechanics of the equipment, as well as uh, the eye and the will of the artist. We can enlarge the aperture and reduce the shutter speed to get the same exposure value and the aperture used to do so affects our depth of field which gives us artistic options. I can take like 10 minutes to fill a bucket with um, water very deliberately through a straw or I can smash the water into the bucket in a 500th of a second with a fire hose and you know it's it basically gives you the same picture but with very different results so you know it's really this science and the physics behind photography coupled with the artist inside of us that we use to create the beautiful slices of time that we do this was one of the many attractions of photography for me i go on to discuss what motivates me i guess that i need to start again from my school days I was not a good student when I first tried, you know, in up to high school in the UK, that is. I did okay when I went back to college here in Japan at age 28 and learnt multimedia and, uh, you know, various sort of computer-related uh, topics. But, you know, that, that was different. I was, uh, I was ready for that. I, I knew, I think that it's good to get out into society before you actually learn. I, I reckon that kids should only be taught a certain amount and then throw them out to make a living for a while and then teach them the rest. Anyway, I was, um, I was always pushed on immensely when I received even the tiniest amount of praise. Despite not being a good student, I've never really done anything by halves. And, you know, so basically I did it. I, when I do things, I give it my all or nothing. And my mum always told me that if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And I think I was profoundly changed by this seemingly simple statement. Everything that I decide to do gets 100%. I have, in fact, had to learn how to go easy on uh, some projects because I was getting almost compulsive about getting everything just right. In photography, I've found something that, that excites me from a scientific and artistic perspective, and I've become good enough to receive praise for my work. When I see the reaction of the viewers of my photographs, I'm encouraged to create more and more. It's the look or sometimes even the tears in their eyes or the kind comments that I've received from viewers of my work that makes me realize that my mastery of both the science and the art of photography is in some way affecting them, sometimes causing an emotional response. Sometimes people enjoy my work to the point that they buy prints to enjoy the work firsthand and they hang it on their walls or gift to loved ones. This is another huge motivation for me. These things are my drive and what urge me to push the boundaries further to better my craft and to continue to reach out with my photography.
Next, I discussed what uh, the somewhat cliched uh, subject of painting with light. Um, I'm doing the little quotation things with my fingers right now. Uh, as we all know, light is a, uh, everything in photography. With no light at all, we can't make traditional photographs, not without including sort of infrared and what have you. The quality of the light that we use for our photographs governs the end results. I shot two images of the same flower bed within minutes of each other, and we, you know, we looked at these together in a recent podcast, but I really have to have you look at these again uh, now just to follow the topic. So let's have a look at just these two in the normal way, either in iTunes or on my website by entering the image numbers or looking at the podcast page. So the first one is image number 1561. And as you can see, this shot has light pouring into it, actually through a gap in the trees behind the scene that you can't see in the image. And I'm going to go into, I'm not going to go into details about the image itself. Um, but I, you know, just take a quick look there now while it's on the screen, if you're looking on an iPod or, you know, in iTunes. And then the next thing we moving on very quickly we want to look at another image the next image which is number 1564 literally taken just minutes later and has just a tiny amount of direct sunlight hitting the pink flower in the top right third intersection there with the rest in total shade the feel of the shots though as i'm sure you'll agree is totally different the image with the direct light has a very warm late afternoon, maybe even sort of lazy afternoon feel to it. The almost totally shaded uh, flower bed, though, has a very pastel colour feel, looking more that it like it was shot around dawn, maybe. This really shows how much light affects an image, even when shot at pretty much exactly the same time. I go to great lengths to be at the right place at the right time. Driving uh, through the night or sleeping in the car is not uncommon. Especially in Japan, the sun rises very early, so uh, the morning sort of golden time, I'm doing that those quotes things again with my fingers here, uh, the golden time is very early. Getting up early doesn't really cut it because I'm so far away from any of the places of natural beauty that I frequent. Having said that, I don't believe that shooting in the harsh midday light is a no-no. We often can't beg and choose, so we have to learn to capitalise on what we have sometimes. With macro, macro work, for example, the bright midday sun is not always a bad thing. So I adjust my goals uh, to suit the time of day that I can shoot. Next, I go into the depth of field, sort of, well, the whole depth of field thing from my perspective. Uh, when I started out in photography, I was under the misconception that I had to get as much depth of field in my images as possible, regardless of my artistic objectives or lack of them. Of course, there are times when you need to get as much depth of field as you can, and I now shoot at hyperfocal distance, for example, uh, often you know during when I'm shooting landscapes uh, to achieve this, but. Before I figured out the real artistic uses of depth of field, I was obsessive about getting as much of it as possible. I shot almost exclusively in aperture priority mode, which is not a bad thing in itself, but my main reason was so that I could adjust the aperture to the smallest possible while watching the result um, of the, you know, the shutter speed. 
just to increase my depth of field as much as possible. Thinking about it, I'd probably have been better just shooting in shutter priority and let the uh, camera give me the lowest um, or the smallest um, aperture possible. Uh, but, you know, I, I really just now cringe when looking at some of my early photography due to this misconception. Since I started to experiment with the artistic uses of bokeh, which is the, the now anglicized Japanese word for the out-of-focus areas of a photograph, a huge proportion of my photography is shot with wide apertures. This started with macro work, but as I'm able to add large aperture lenses to my arsenal, this really is taking over my photography and changing my style immensely. I now tend to think in terms of how wide an aperture I can get away with. At first, I would shoot uh, from like the widest aperture to small, really small, even the smallest apertures that I could get away with. Probably a remnant of my earlier habits, though now I tend to just shoot wide open and then uh, you know, maybe just click down a few times and not even bother to cover the smaller apertures as I know I won't use them. Placing objects between your camera and your main subject area can uh, help to add uh, like a depth and additional interest. I call this uh, foreground bucket and I tend to keep my eyes open for situations where this will work, but try not to overdo it because it can be a little bit cliche. Many people think that once the, the background has been thrown out of focus with a wide aperture, it can be forgotten about. This is at best wasting a valuable artistic resource and at worst you'll end up with patches of colour or contrast in areas that you really didn't want and they can really disrupt the, com the composition or flow of your end results. This is especially true when you have stopped down uh, to you know, a, wider, a wide aperture, um, stopped it down some without checking the depth of field preview. Um, not always necessary once you get you know once you're used to it but advisable uh, when you're developing your eye uh, to just to sort of hit that uh, preview button as stopping down even by one stop puts considerable more considerably more shape into the bokeh that uh, you know just can't be seen with a wider aperture once you get the hang of really seeing your bokeh though you can start to clean up the background and foreground and then start to use it to add interest to your images by placing patches of colour in and light in key areas and then use that bucket to paint in your background. While out shooting these days I keep an eye out trying to see subjects in the shade with, with bright backgrounds then once again keeping my eye on the position of, positioning of the elements in the bucket I found find an exposure somewhere between that necessary for the shade and the bright areas. The result can be incredibly interesting, sometimes even surreal, like watercolour background. Next, I discuss proximity. Getting in close to your subject will always add impact and help to remove distracting objects uh, from the surroundings. This is how we edit our images in the camera. This goes for all kinds of photography, including landscapes and wildlife. While being careful not to get up too close, by keeping your distance and using telepho uh, telephoto lenses, you can still fill the frame with portions of the landscape or wildlife. 
It's sometimes difficult to know just how much to crop out while shooting, but my rule of thumb is to keep everything in that's necessary to identify the subject or the scene, and everything else is expendable. People sometimes comment on my work saying that it would be nice to see the whole scene or at the top of a line of trees or something, but what they don't realise is that by going wider and showing that, you're simply detracting from the main subject, and that's really what attracted me to the scene in the first place. So in my opinion, it's totally unnecessary to include something that people can guess is there. Sometimes quite the opposite is true. You can stay well away from a subject that you might want to get closer to, but compose the shot in such a way that the surroundings are either totally non-distracting or natural yet unencroaching environment for your subject. Isolating your subject in its environment will of course distance you from the subject, but this can actually result in a shot almost as intimate as one in which you can almost feel the warmth of their breath. Next, I get into my favourite controversial subject of look in photography. There's almost always a special moment or a few minutes when the photo is right there for the making. Mist on a lake, for example, might only be there for 30 seconds or a few minutes at the most. A quirky pose of a wild animal can last a second, a fraction of a second. Getting to a spot that you're likely to see your subject and be ready to capture the scene is paramount. Knowing your gear like the back of your hand is important too, so that you don't fumble the shot when the, you know, in the excitement of the situation. I've heard people talk about looking photography though as though it's a dirty word. Some people feel that it's, you know, as the technician behind the shot we have total control and the very thought of an element of look affecting the outcome is simply outrageous. This to me is as outrageous as look having no part in photography. Sure, if you're shooting household goods for a catalogue in a studio, with total control over the subject and lighting, then look won't come into it. I agree. Even if you're working with models, children or even animals, if the situation is controllable, look probably plays only a part in your end results. But if you're shooting nature or na natural events or wildlife, any one of multiple factors either can make or break your photographs. Of course, planning your shoots at, at a, a time of day to get the right quality or direction of light is important. Using information on hand like magazines, the internet or your own shooting history to time your visit at certain times of year, say the autumn um, when the leaves are at their best or certain types of flowers are, blo are blooming, uh, all of that's necessary. No amount of luck, though, will bring a rose into bloom or autumn leaves on the trees in the middle of February, not in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. All the best planning and effort on your part, though, does n not guarantee that you get the shot. Mother Nature will always have the last say. We can sometimes make the most of what we get by switching to shooting in the rain instead of sunshine, if that's what happens, and this can give good results too. I actually sometimes head out in the rain just for this. But if I wanted rain and the sun shone, I'd be in the reverse situation with the same lack of luck. Or should I say cooperation. Hold your post and don't listen to everything people say is the next topic. 
External or available information is important in photography. We can't know what's happening everywhere and often local information from someone in the know can be invaluable. Where there's a bird with hatchlings in the nest or where there's a little known waterfall at the end of a dirt track is information that we must reap or we'd have no idea where to go. When it comes to nature though, the locals may have as little knowledge as you as, again, uh, you know, this, this can be based on mainly on luck. A good example of good fortune through holding my post is when I climbed a mountain that is a few hours away from my Tokyo apartment uh, by car. I was hoping to capture a sunset including the iconic Mount Fuji which I know is visible from the top of the mountain. I'd been there before and planned to come back for this reason someday. It had become quite cloudy as we approached though and uh, I climbed the, amount, the mountain with a heavy camera bag on my back and it, I, was, I was thinking that maybe I'd be out of luck. It, the clouds were really rolling in. As I reached the summit, there were a few photographers that had started packing their gear away and after a short while made their way down the mountain. My better half, who was with me at the time, uh, turned and said that we were probably out of luck and we should go home. I wasn't ready to quit though and there was a small shack selling drinks and snacks as this is a popular location and I went inside and bought a drink and at the same time asked the guy if he thought that we'd see Mount Fuji today. Nah, he said, the clouds had rolled in thick and we were probably out of luck for today was his forecast. Still, I was not ready to quit. The clouds were thick and it was cold but I was hoping for a spot of luck. I set up my camera and waited for a while. My wife was getting cold and I was thinking that maybe um, it was a futile exercise. But what the hey, we'd spent the afternoon getting here and we, you know, we may as well wait until the sun goes down. After a while the clouds started to turn red indicating that the sun was getting lower in the sky. Within minutes the clouds broke and the magnificent form of Mount Fuji presented itself with the sun also breaking through the clouds forming an incredible fiery red sunset with thick cloud sort of looming across the top of the sky. Despite it being a magnificent landscape on a grand scale it was almost as though I was watching the drama through a letterbox. Needless to say that I felt not only humbled by the beauty of the vista before me, but I felt happy that I'd stuck to my guns. I also, of course, felt incredibly lucky. Against all odds, I was the only person left on the mountain with a camera as everyone else was being warned by their air conditioning in their cars on the way home. And I have the photographs to prove it. Next I talk about respecting our subjects. I have a deep respect for all living beings and I like to think that this comes across in my work. Every living creature, be it flora or fauna, and every piece of earth, rock, body of water that homes it, deserves to be treated with respect. If you treat your subjects with contempt, the results will not only show through in your work, but you'll probably end up harming your subject in some way to get your shots. In macro photography, for example, I've heard of people, um, rarely, but I've heard of people capturing their subjects, killing them, and then pinning them into place in order to get a sort of, you know, a rare insect looking natural on a plant. 
this is like I say rare but it I would hope at least but it's uh, it still shows you how people are sometimes careless enough uh, to harm the insects or their habitat uh, even without killing them you know this is what I mean here um, which is of course never going to help the creature that we covered on film with larger animals getting too close or stalking them for too long can affect their behavior patterns this can have repercussions on their mating habits too, which again is not really what we want to be doing. This is a fine line though. We need to get relatively close to animals to photograph them. Also, shooting wildlife and publishing our work helps to bring them into the spotlight and helps others to appreciate them, which in turn helps to raise awareness and to some degree can help protect their environment. So I'm not saying that we should not photograph wildlife. I'm saying that when we do, we should treat them with respect and be careful not to disrupt their behavior patterns or the environment that they depend on. If you really live this, it will start to shine through in your images. Next is another of my pet topics, getting it right in camera. With digital photography making it so much easier to confirm that our exposure is correct, I find it totally backwards not to chimp, which is of course the act of looking at your LCD after shooting a photograph. I agree that this can be taken too far, looking at the LCD after every single image is counterproductive, but I see no reason why we shouldn't use the technology to ensure that our results are what we expect and that the light falls where we intend it to on our histograms. I'm a huge believer that we should strive to get it right in camera. Just because you can change the exposure or white balance or a multitude of other settings in post-processing, it doesn't mean that you should rely on this. Even if you shoot raw, everything done to your final image is destructive to a degree, even if you don't change the original raw file. There's a limit to how much detail you can restore in blown out highlights and dragging detail out of shadows only increases grain. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that I don't use post-processing to correct mistakes in the field, but I believe that we should, uh, you know, we should use it for just that, correcting mistakes, not use it as an excuse for sloppy shooting. I finish with a section on fine art prints. I find actually printing out our photographs is an incredibly important step in appreciating our art. People actually hold their prints in physical form so much less now with the advent of digital. These days we can see perfect representations on screen, uh, create amazing slideshows and thick flick through thumbnails at will on our digital light boxes without ever having to create a print. But when you do print out your work on nice quality paper, especially like A4 or better still A3+, that's 13 by 19 inch sizes, the print really just comes to life. Sure, there are issues uh, of monitor and print calibration to make, make uh, sure that you get everything close to what you see on your screen, but I find that calibrating the monitor regularly and then using printer profiles from paper manufacturers that match your printer enabled me to get, um, get it spot on most of the time with the odd reprint for predominantly dark subjects. Just the feeling of one of those babies printed out 
especially on one of the professional fine art papers, really caps off the whole photography thing for me. It is these prints, actually, that is one of the main forms of income from photography uh, for me, especially as penny stock agencies increase uh, with you know more and more people practically giving away their images, effectively knocking the bottom out of the stock photography market. Pretty much all of the images in my online gallery are available to buy fine art prints of at sizes up to uh, 13 by 19. I price my images reasonably, my prints reasonably, uh, to allow more people the thrill of holding a fine art print without breaking the bank. It's always a thrill for me too to receive an email from a happy customer that's just slid one of the prints out of the postage tube and held it in their hand for the first time and experienced the quality and the beauty of the print. Quite often they simply can't resist letting me know how it feels and I'm incredibly grateful for this. And that was pretty much what I finished the document with in terms of content. I include a page with links and some reference details of all 15 of the images included in the document. There's also a reference page, uh, but as you already listened to the podcast, there won't really be uh, anything there new to you. So I'm going to skip over that. Before we finish, just a, a brief reminder that the fire assignment finishes this coming weekend. Your images needed to be uploaded by uh, the uh, to the mbpgalleries.com website. They need to be uploaded there by the end of November the 25th, at which time I'll lock the gallery for upload and start the voting system uh, for an additional two weeks until December the 9th. I'll then announce the winners in the podcast that uh, it will be released shortly after December the 9th, uh, probably the 10th or the 11th. I also have found a sponsor to give us a great prize uh, that I intend to announce in the um, the opener for the next assignment and I may well make this the year prize um, a tad early, probably one assignment earlier than expected um, so get those entries in and give yourself a chance to, to scoop the grand prize. Finally a word on the Hokkaido workshop for next year I've actually left the price of the workshop at the price uh, that I, you know, that I had for the early bird um, discount, even though we've passed the deadline. Basically, we still don't really have enough people to to make this totally worthwhile. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead with it. Uh, but to hopefully get a few a few more people interested, I've left the prices as they are. I'll continue to take bookings for a while at the original rate. The longer you leave it though, the more that it's likely that I won't be able to add additional rooms or flights, etc. So I still urge you to let me know as soon as possible if you are interested. You can actually book your place by making the payment with the links on the mbpworkshops.com website. And you can also find lots of other information there too uh, to help you make up your mind. If you still have any questions though, just mail me at workshops at martinbaileyphotography.com and I'll answer any questions that you might have. And that's about it for today. We were played in by Shams, a higher realm. And I guess all that remains to be said is thanks for listening and you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye bye.
photocastnetwork.com, your photography resource in the potosphere. photocastnetwork.com